And what's amazing, you're right, in terms of accessing the lives of ancient people, the things you mentioned, the tables, the books, those are the things students most want to know in Latin. Uh They don't often want to read about the army Uh or the invasion of France 2,100 years ago. They say, that stuff's great, but like, you know, what was it like to be a little girl? What did she Uh do all day long? What was it like to sneak off from the teacher? You're listening to Speaking of Language a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. I'm Dan Gable, Technology Manager for the LRC. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week, on Speaking of Language. We all know there are two types of human languages, dead ones and living ones. But what would happen if a dead language came back to life? if contemporary people started speaking it and teaching it. In today's episode, we interview Professor Michael Fontaine, Professor of Classics and Associate Vice Provost of Undergraduate Education at Cornell. He himself is a Latin speaker and teacher. How does that work? You might wonder what a modern language teacher is doing with somebody in the Classics department, but they aren't as far away as you might think. What are some of the things you've been doing over there, Mike? Well, you're right. They're not that far away. And what we're trying to do is bring them a lot closer together if we can. Uh, Traditionally, classics has been seen as the study of ancient Greek and Latin. People say they're dead languages and they're taught in a specific Mm -hmm. way. They've been taught that way for hundreds of years. Uh, I liked uh, what you mentioned as the one-page a pile of dictionaries and grammar books, and three hours. That's right. To read well, the one page. That's right. We sl- it's a slog. So we teach <laughs> students how to diagram sentences and draw lines and arrows connecting the adjectives with the nouns, which can be far separated and in all kinds of orders. And we call it a win when a student can read one page in three hours with all <laughs> kinds of grammatical aids of various kinds. Uh, but alongside this tradition, which is has been sort of rock solid in universities, for a couple hundred years, Latin in particular has sort of lived on as a spoken language inside the Catholic Church. And so we are finally starting to see some crossover with the methods that they've used uh, with priests and seminarians into American universities. And I should be clear, we're not interested really in the theological content that's regarded as totally separate, but simply the language methods So we're seeing some crossovers, and we see that some of the people trained in this Vatican method can read Latin as the same way that, uh, you know, you might read a few pages of French or Mm -hmm. German or Spanish or something like that. And uh, what we don't know is anything about modern language acquisition theory. (laughs) (laughs) We are very, very far behind the curve. It is not uh, in any way part of our uh, PhD training. We are trained to be researchers in the classical world, which takes you back about 3,000 to 2,000 years ago. Uh, And so we are discovering things that you probably have known about most of your career. Yes, I attended the talk uh, a month ago or so by the man from uh, uh, Jerusalem, right? Yes, the Polis Institute, Institute. Christoph Rico. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, yes, they seem to be making some inroads into... uh, um, uh, language, modern language teaching uh, theory, like the idea that you need to just hear a lot of the language and, or read a lot of it 
have a lot of input before you can go to trying to understand it or, or come out with it. Yeah, we're at a big disadvantage there, obviously, without having a, a country full of people that speak the language. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean simpler things like comprehensible input. This is a point that uh, right. Dr. Rico made. We need to have books that are written for you to be able to read at the level that you're at. Um, most of my career, that stuff hasn't existed. Or if it has, we haven't known anything about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now we are trying to rediscover the aids that already exist that have been around for a few hundred years or start creating some new ones of our own. Uh, what's interesting is when we have students who are trained in this active use of Latin in particular, uh, they go from being able to read three pages in an, or a page in three hours to being able to read a page in two or three minutes uh-huh. or even like, faster than that. Like a real reader. Like That's what right. we would call a reader. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The way that I can do with Italian, uh, which is not mm-hmm. any great feat of mine. It's just, you know, I lived there for a couple of years and you learn yeah. after a while. Right. So you're, yeah. yeah. And so there's a lot of pushback within classics. Uh, it's sort of strange uh, looking from the outside because... Uh, the people who are most against this sort of pedag- pedagogical reform are the people that aren't already trained in it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so they often say, well, I don't really see the point of doing this. And I've now met several hundred people trained in the active use of the Latin language, and not a single one of those people trained that way thinks that they knew the language better the other way. Uh-huh. So, I, I, I thought at that uh, talk there was a key question that was asked, and I really enjoyed the answer. And the question was, Well, look, if the real underlying reason for learning these languages is to be able to read these canonical texts, why are you guys talking about kind of everyday things and um, uh, possibly little stories that aren't from the canon, but using those as, as, as learning tools? But why not just do the canon if that's what your goal is? Well, so it's a legitimate question. The goal is, to be absolutely clear, to read the classical text. That's what we are after. We are not uh, trying to teach students in this way just so they can talk about sports or the weather or breakfast, all in Latin. But if you want to really understand a text, uh, you know, I should be clear about what is currently being done in a lot of classes. Students will have, say, one line of Virgil's Aeneid. That's about six or seven words. Of those six or seven words, they might have to look up three or four in a dictionary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they find a range of meanings. Then they got to figure out what part of speech they are, how they go together, all this. This is a process that takes a few minutes. And so it's more like cracking a code or deciphering hieroglyphics or something. It's not really reading the text. No, it's, that's not um, reading. We, we, we wouldn't say that, that was reading. That's right. And so you, you, it's a legitimate question to ask. Even after you've gotten the lexical meaning of all the words, and you've figured out the grammatical relationship, are you still actually understanding the sentence uh-huh. as if it were something produced by a human being, uh, as opposed to, say, I don't know, some kind of monumental inscription that was not really meant to have any immediate sentiment? Um, so we're trying hard to get people to that point where things are intuitive. And one of the points I like to make with students is that uh, Latin, and this is true of Greek as well, but especially of Latin, there's a great deal of ambiguity so you might have mm. one, uh, you might see a form in a sentence, one word, and it could be two or three different things, mm-hmm. or four or five different things. Uh, and when you have a sentence and you've got about seven of those ambiguities out of twelve words, <laughs> you can start to see quickly how it spirals out of control. And so one of the great advantages of the living method is it hammers away f- the most familiar forms all the time. So you, your mind stops seeing the ambiguities. 
Uh, that is to say, as you get more comfortable with the language, more familiar with it, the theoretical possibilities don't even occur to you any longer. Uh-huh. Uh, and the problem we have now with students is we get some great students and they memorize every theoretical possibility. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then they will defend to the death some remote possibility that's not correct in the sentence, but they know that if they go to the grammar book, they can find it there. And so um, it really is about precluding the ambiguities. That's kind of what we're after. Could Would you say precluding the ambiguities? Another way of saying that is what I would call top-down processing. Can you explain that? This yeah. is another case where we I haven't even ever heard the label. Tell me uh-huh. about it. Well, we talk about top-down and bottom-up processing in comprehension of spoken and written material. So top-down processing would be something like well, here's a page of text. I see. Is this the whole text? What's the title? When? What else do I know about it? When was it written? Do I know anything about the author? So I start developing in my mind a good idea of fair, some idea of what this is going to say before I even start reading it. And it feeds into what you just said, precluded some of the unlikely things. Mm-hmm. I kind of have an idea of this genre that it's going to have, you know, if it's a some kind of essay, that it's going to, where, where the general sentences are going to be, where the details are going to be, where the summary is going to be. Um, and uh, also I start thinking as I see the title and I start reading a little bit, well, what words do I know? What words do I, am I likely to expect to see here? And, and what are those meanings? And, and uh, for, for those words that maybe have other meanings, I don't need to worry about those other meanings because I know we're going to be focusing on this meaning. So that's that's kind of top-down processing, imagining. It's not imagining. It's calculating, really, what is the likely content of what I'm about, to, content and structure of what I'm about to read or listen to. Bottom-up, then, is is the, the, the kind of processing you, you were talking about, about looking at a word, what's the ending, what's the root, uh, what, what uh, grammatical likelihood is it going to have, but you see, uh, a real reader needs, uh, as I'm sure you'd agree, needs to use both of those to come at a meeting. So uh, it's very interesting to hear you parse it apart that way. Uh, I would say classics as a whole is excellent at the top down. Most of our classes are based on prepping a student with the text, saying, hey, folks, we're here. We're going to read Julius Caesar's commentaries about the invasion and conquest of Gaul. So we all know exactly what uh, what it is we're going to be reading. Uh, most teachers will sort of prep the students with a map, say, well, here's Italy, here's mm-hmm, Gaul, we mm-hmm. call it France today, and so on. Maybe some vocabulary, too. What would you, That's we right. would say, well, what words would you likely run into in, in, in this uh, 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 text? That's right. But so here's the problem that we have in Latin uh, where it makes sort of the bottom-up processing so much more essential. The first sentence of Caesar's Gallic Wars will say, Gallia est omnis. All right, so Gallia is Gaul. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets excited. They know est is pretty obvious. It means is. You say, yeah, uh-huh. I can do this. Then uh-huh. you get the word omnis. And you say, oh boy. Well, omnis can be nine different things in Latin. Uh-huh. It's an adjective. It means all or every. Uh, but the problem is you say, well, does it go with gallia? Does it go with something else? It could be all these different things. It could be masculine. It could be feminine. It could be neuter. Mm. It could be in what we call the nominative case, as in fact it is in this one. It could be in the genitive case. It could be in the accusative plural case, which would make it the direct object. 
in the, not, the masculine mm-hmm. or the feminine. Mm-hmm. It could be the vocative case if you were talking to somebody. And students without experience reading a lot of simple connected prose, all those possibilities bloom up. And what are you supposed to do? It's like throwing darts in the dark. Uh, and so we need to train them into what's most likely yeah. uh, to be said in that case. And I think the simple way to do it is with these gradual readers, the comprehensible input. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, what I would do faced with a problem like that is I would continue on. To what? The next sentence. Uh, but the next sentence is going to be the same thing. Yes, but <laughs> as I, I and I would start to get an idea of what are we talking about here? What is he trying to... That was probably an introductory sentence. What what is, generally is he trying to say about Gaul? Then I'd come back and I'd say, okay, it must be that. So that's a, a good sentiment. I think that works especially well with the Romance languages or, or with German, which is the other language I'm more familiar with. It's harder to do with Latin because... Uh, in Latin, there's so many ambiguities that if you don't, in fact, figure out what the whole sentence says, you often can't get the gist of it. Um, I see. Because there's so many ambiguities, and, and I've seen this happen over and over, students get one form wrong, and they reverse the subject and the object, or so, and they rewrite the whole story to fit what they think it ought to say. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. You can certainly make mistakes. Oh, sure. But that's, uh, I mean, another um, concept from language teaching that, I, that occurs to me here is what we call scaffolding. Okay, explain that, please. That's where, you know, when you're when you're building a building, you build a scaffold around it to allow that's a, a place you can climb up and that sort of holds things together, um, whereas the building itself is unstable. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we scaffold texts by uh, maybe giving them some hints, uh, as I said, by preparing some vocabulary, maybe uh, uh, just plain uh, giving away, uh, uh, clarifying for students uh, a few of the tricky grammatical points that are going to come up, things like that. You probably do stuff like that. We do. I think the best teachers do a great deal of that. Uh, And um, we should be doing more because I think that is probably the best way to help students get familiar with Latin texts or or Greek texts as well. And the way, again, to do that is to uh, probably to just hammer home the forms verbally that they're going to be seeing in the text most commonly. Um, So there's a problem in Latin in particular where you have a verb, a finite verb. Uh, It might say, we dare. And you look at that and the average person is going to think it's the infinitive to see. But in fact, in the text, it could also mean they saw. Uh Uh, And it's an alternate form. And you can get students ready for that kind of ambiguity uh, by just constantly hammering away using the alternate forms or something and that way when they see them they uh the ambiguity they hadn't thought of will occur immediately uh and they will see in the context that maybe it can't be infinitive so it's got to be this other form and i've seen this process happen where it picks up uh students pick up speed doing that Uh so i guess that Uh would fit into the category of scaffolding um but it's not necessarily something natural because in classics so much of the focus traditionally has been on getting through the text. That's a, uh-huh. a phrase we use, get through the text. Uh-huh. That doesn't really sound like enjoy the text. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but the goal is often to sort of understand the narrative. Uh, and, you know, that doesn't always happen with complete success. I mean, one of the things we also do in uh, language teaching is have um, a student to watch a movie or read a text where... Basically, they already know the content. Okay. So a lot of these uh, difficult ambiguities, the basic ambiguities, kind of fade away. We know it's 
we know it's not about somebody in their house, but it's mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. people out on the battlefield. Uh-huh. You know, th- basic yep. things like that. So, so that that helps them. That, that's another kind of, of scaffolding is already knowing the story. So, like reading a synopsis of it. Um, one set of video materials done by our Russian program had uh, to scaffold watching a video. There was a synopsis of each scene. Mm-hmm. Now, reading that was also a task because that was in the target language. Okay. But still, it was probably easier than understanding all the vi- all the audio uh, coming through in the in the video the, the, at spoken speed. So, so you hit on a couple of ideas. One is um, people have had this idea for for Greek and Latin. They want to translate Doctor Seuss into uh-huh. Latin, and they have. Uh-huh. In fact, uh, there's a couple of translations uh-huh. of Doctor Seuss that are absolutely ingenious, uh-huh. brilliant, really uh-huh. well done. Uh, they've done Harry Potter into Greek and Latin uh, and some uh. of other books. The problem is oftentimes the translators make the Greek and Latin quite difficult. And so uh, there's nothing wrong with it. It's quite yeah. elegant if you already know Greek or Latin. But if uh-huh. you want to use you're them learner, as yeah. – if you're a learner, it can be really difficult to get through. Uh-huh. And so I'd like to see uh, simplified versions. I've been watching this with my own kids right now. We read the Spider-Man stories, uh-huh. and you can get them at reader level one, reader level two, yeah, reader level exactly. three. It's the same illustrations, and the level one has got an extremely simple sentence. Level two, a little more detail. Level three, it gets the story actually something uh-huh. you might want to read. Uh-huh. Um, so I'd like to see us do that, and I would think publish, publishing these things on the Internet would cost virtually nothing. Uh-huh. The other thing I hope to do is interest a group of people in... Uh, doing subtitles or dubbing of Latin for like movies, great movies that you want to watch, oh, uh-huh. exciting yeah, movies. Right? We don't need to reinvent the wheel and make the movie ourselves. Uh-huh. I just want permission to dub. Uh, I don't know the Matrix into Latin uh-huh. or dub. Uh, you know whatever's in in the theaters these days. Something people want to go see. Yeah. Black Panther. Could we put uh, that into Latin? That would right. be kind of interesting. Uh, teachers have quite a lot of copyright uh, rights when it's kind of transformative and used for class, huh. you know, um, especially if you don't use the entire work. So you um, could do just a scene of a movie. Absolutely. Really? And if yeah. I w- would I need to, I guess I'd probably have to let the filmmakers know. Nope. Really? Nope. What if I wanted to put it on YouTube? It might be trickier. Yeah. Till they found you. But boy, think of the possibilities there, right? You see a, a wonderful scene of a movie, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 10 minutes, it's a movie you love, right? And you, you want to watch and, it. And again, you know the top-down, yes. the story from the top-down point of view. Ah, that's a, this idea, I think, really has got legs. I just need partners. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> time, time. They say in Latin, yeah. tempus fugit. Yeah. <laughs> I've Time's heard that. flying. Yeah. It's one of the uh, few Latin phrases I probably have heard. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's on grandfather clocks often. You'll see tempus oh, yeah. fugit or tempus volat. They both mean time flies. I see. And I had a friend uh, growing up down the street who repaired clocks. And people used to call, and they say, oh, my clock is broken. Can you fix it? He says, what kind is it? And they say, it's a Tempest Fugit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so this is going to be something I'd like to work on with some of the partners, community partners now. We're seeing a couple of these institutes pop up. Some have been around for about six, seven, eight, ten years now. I the see. Paideia Institute I work with, Polis in Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, there's some other colleagues at the University of Kentucky, at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, a couple other places around Wyoming Catholic College doing some amazing stuff. Uh-huh. You, you, you know something that, that the, your speaker said uh, in response to that question that, really, that I mentioned that really struck me was 
the people who wrote these stories, these accounts of these great wars and stuff, they were actually people too. They had mothers. Yeah. They had chairs. They had tables. They had children. And that this is a, also a legitimate way of accessing their lives and understanding their lives. Weren't there, were, were there children's books in Roman times? Well, we know a fair amount, believe it or not, about how they taught people to read. Uh-huh. Uh, we have uh, an entire 10, we would say chapter, a 10-book treatise by Quintilian, a guy named Quintilian. He was the first professor of, you might say, Latin studies under the Emperor uh-huh. Trajan. And the whole thing is called on the education of a law school student. Uh, oh, law see. school is basically what everybody did back then if they were in the uh-huh. middle or upper class. And he tells you exactly. The Roman kids would learn syllables and uh, first the alphabet, then the syllables, and they would, um, then they would study rhetoric uh, and poetry. Uh, whether they had gradual readers or something is pretty hard to say. If they did, we don't have any of them. But they did have a lot of fables, you know, Aesop's fables. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have those in Some Latin of those and in are- Greek at least partly fairly simple stories, at least on the surface fairly simple stories, right? Absolutely. We use those in class uh, here when I did the flax section. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was down Friday visiting a, a remarkable school in Washington, D.C., the Washington Latin School, mm. and they asked me in a couple of classes to do a little presentation. So I pulled out one from this guy, Phaedrus, uh, and the mascot of the school is the lions. And so there's a fable about a jackass that finds a lion skin and puts it on and he scares the other animals. <laughs> and then uh-huh. the, uh, I forget, is it the mother or somebody comes over to the jackass? Oh, it's the master. The owner of the jackass comes over and says, well, you look like an idiot. Take that off. I can see your ears sticking off. And so the moral is pretty simple. The people who know you best, uh-huh. they know when you're putting on airs. I see. And the Latin is very simple and the students got it and it's a chance to act out and bray like a donkey or roar like a lion (laughs) Uh Uh, and what's amazing you're right in terms of accessing the lives of ancient people the things you mentioned the tables the books those are the things students most want to know in latin Uh they don't often want to read about the army Uh or the invasion of france 2100 years ago they said that stuff's great but like you know what was it like to be a little girl what did she Uh do all day long what was it like to you know, sneak off from the teacher. We do know some of these things too. They use corporal punishment in the ancient world. Uh huh. Yeah. So if you wanted to learn uh, Homer's Odyssey in this old Latin translation, and you were Horace, you had a teacher that would whip you with a cane if you got it wrong. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Some people think we ought to bring a little of that back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's pretty exciting to bring a, a, you know, a new old language into the uh, community of language teachers, and we we certainly uh, uh, welcome you and find it exciting too. Thank um, you. Lee. How about the moment that everybody listening to this has actually been waiting for, which is to see if you can actually speak Latin? Because I think you can. Quid quid voluveris audiri possum dicere, possum loqui. I can say anything you want to hear. Okay. Uh, maybe not uh, anything. It might take a second, but we can do it. How about telling us your, uh, uh, like, uh, what you did after you got up this morning and, and to get to the office or uh, briefly, oh. you know? Hodie mane delectulo sorexi. I got up out of bed. Then uh-huh. de mihi dentes uh, fricui. Brush my teeth. Uh-huh. Uh, ed pueros 
Osculatusum, uh, I kiss my kids, <laughs> and that kind of thing. Uh, Osculatus, I sort of uh, got a hint there, there. And yeah, there's your kiss, yeah. Uh-huh. In palaestram ii ut corpus exercerem. I went to the gym for a little exercise. Uh-huh. Uh, dinde yeyentakulum, yeyentakulo, what would you say? Wectusum? Do I have? I think I have the wrong verb. See, I'm out of practice doing this too, but I ate breakfast. Uh-huh. See how re- how often I, I can tell you about armies invading Gaul, but can I get the right verb for I ate breakfast? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> All right. Oh, that's pretty great. Uh, uh, and I guess you've had a class of people who sit around and uh, speak uh, in Latin too, right? That's right. We are doing some of that here at Cornell. We got more and more with the appointment of Dan Gallagher from the Vatican. Uh, this movement is growing all around the country, all around the world. We're seeing it start to pop up in Europe, in Brazil, uh, and a few other places. And for the first time ever at our national meeting in 2019, the Society for Classical Studies is hosting a panel on the benefits and the drawbacks of this active use of the, the language. See. So it's a real moment. And I'm glad to hear you say we're welcome in the modern language movement because we got a lot to learn from you. <laughs> Boy, we could use some techniques and some advice. All right. It's exciting for both of us. Yeah. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Sam Lupwitz and Dan Gable. Recorded by Sam Lupwitz. Original music by Sam Lupwitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson.